HHW presents Who Reads the Watchmen? Issue number 5 by The Legion of Dudes. Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of She had a dude? Yeah, when I went to pick her up, there was this dude. How do you know it was her dude? Well, you think it could have been just some dude? Sure, dudes in this town are a dime a dozen. I reckon. Or maybe she just wanted to go to the Tonys. I tell you what, you ask her out again, no Tony, just Jerry. That way you know if the dude is her dude or just some dude. Dude. Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. How are you, gentlemen? All your days are blown to us. You are on the way to destruction. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. And now, here's the dudes. It's seven minutes till midnight. Welcome to Half Hour Wasted presents the Legion of Dudes, who reads The Watchmen, issue number five, our bi-weekly journey through Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' fictional end of days, now with the great taste of Cool Ranch. I'm Jim Dietz a.k.a. Yoda Jones on the comic forums, head chef of the Gunga Diner tonight, aided by and abetted by my fellow legionnaires from our dome deep in the swamps. Gentlemen, introduce yourselves, please. I am Ken Morgan. I'm Russell Latham. I'm Adam Reed. This is uh, Johnny M. from New York. And I'm Adam Umack. And I'm Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Hooray for me. Okay. I'll roll with it. (laughs) You're the one that's got to edit it, Johnny. Just wanted to mention that the Legion of Dudes will be representing at the Steel City Con, the pop culture toy and comic con, at the Pittsburgh Expo Mart, uh, October 24th and 25th. We're going to have a table there. We're going to be giving away some swag, some CDs of our shows. And uh, come on down and say hello. Now I'm going to pass it off to Adam Reed with some comments from our last issue. Thanks, Jim. Uh, yeah, we got a few comments on the forums uh, for over the uh, issue four that we did. Uh, Optimus Black, 2007, that's Sean Pryor from PKD Media. He said, uh, you guys keep on churning these out like Land Lakes butter. Awesome. <laughs> uh, and uh, Optimus Black, uh, Sean has been a really big supporter of ours. So uh, if you all can go out and support him with his uh, Mercury and the Murder comic, I know he's got uh, the collected edition out on uh, at DCBS and Heroes Corner. And Caliban sent in a note too. He said, "On our great listen, dudes, the Watergate reference comes up in issue nine, which is Lori's literal origin issue." Uh, I don't think Wally Weaver and Janie Slater got cancer from working at Gale Flats or from Dr. Manhattan. They were unknowingly but deliberately exposed to carcinogenic radiation while working for the dimensional development between 1967 and 1985, as was uh, Moloch. Not to throw out any spoilers, but that is delineated in a later issue. I just reread the whole thing the other day so about oh, the okay. cancer with, with Janie and Moloch. Okay. So that's just uh, a few of the comments we got uh, on the forums from the last issue so you guys can keep those coming in they really uh add something to the discussion i think uh john i think you said we had an email yes we had an email over at uh comments at legionofdudes.com you can send us an email there anytime uh we received an email from jesse 
Um, he said, I'm really enjoying the Watchmen episodes. I just finished number three and we'll be starting on four later today. One point that I had to make was how depressing the series was back in the 80s uh, when I was reading this issue by issue. And he goes on um, a little bit about how he felt about the series as it was coming out. Um, anyway, I'm enjoying the roller coaster ride all over again with your podcasts. So we want to thank Jesse very much for sending us that email. And um, Jim, you read the books as they were coming out originally. Uh, did you feel it was it was depressing as you were reading the beginning of the series? Uh, up to that point, nothing really that dark, that postmodern had come out except for uh, The Dark Knight Returns. And I remember thinking that, wow, you know, comics are really getting adult now. They're dealing with adult themes. They're dealing with realistic themes. And uh, issue by issue, I really I had no idea what was going to happen uh, from issue to issue. And I loved that about Watchmen when it did come, when it came out. Excellent. Before we start with the discussion topics, I was just listening to the latest uh, Comic Geek Speak episode. Do you know there's another Legion podcast out? Did you hear about this? You know, well, no, I didn't hear oh, no. about it, but I oh. happened to Google Legion of Dudes just to see like what threads we would come up on and stuff, and I found another. Uh, yeah, there's another one out there. Uh, dude, Paul French, Public Enemy Number One. We're supposed to have Paul in for issue nine. Uh, no longer. Uh, Paul and Rainbow Cloak, and they're doing the Legion of Substitute Podcasters. They're doing a Legion podcast. Um, I de- I'm declaring war right now. I don't know what the rest of you guys think, but uh, yeah, they're dead. Yeah, let's beat them up. I googled Legion of Dudes too, and uh, I didn't find that, but it's also a uh, San Francisco transvestite club. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being 100 percent serious. Wow. Well, Adam did think of this name. It was Adam. Did you just already have that on your computer already, Dan. Oh. Let's clarify. That's Adam Umac. Paul right. that name. Well, that was Dan. Well, Dan helped, and uh, he also bookmarked it. So, <laughs> well, I will say five five of the front the first page hits of Legion of Dudes is us. So that's that's good. That's cool. They're just doing the Legion, right? They're doing straight-up Legion podcasts, like Legion of Superheroes? Yep. There was actually well, another that- Legion of Dudes. I don't know if it was a blog or a podcast or what exactly, but it was kind of like a defunct website that hadn't been uh, hadn't been used in a while. Well, if they don't have the URL, then that means we're, we're the, right. the uh, real thing. We are <laughs> the real the- thing, but not the transvestites. Dan, was that the old um, Potomatic page from the old Legion of Dudes? No, no, or no, it's an it's a known anti-monogamous group. I'm sorry. I'd also like to say that Dan's logo, the last one, was a beaver. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God! So you're from rural Pennsylvania, then? (laughs) Pennsylvania. I'm gonna I'm gonna put a stop to this right now and hand it over to Russ, who will be leading our Watchmen discussion. Russ? Uh, today's topic of discussion, I just wanted to give a rundown of the printed editions that Watchmen has come, at, come out in over the years. Um, of course, starting with 86 to 87, it came out in, as 12 individual issues, not as a um, trade as is commonly uh, thought of now. It, it's almost hard to imagine this as actually being a 12-issue monthly series because any time we've seen it in the last you know 22 years has been... Um, in trade format for the most part. So, so the original one was 12 issues, um, and then pretty much immediately traded right after that. Um, and it, I don't even know what printing they're up to now. Probably, uh, what, 12, 13th printing at least, if not more than that by now. 
I think uh, the the fifth printing of the absolute version was just solicited. That was solicited along with the Watchmen number one new printing uh, at the original cover price of a dollar fifty. They're I guess they're reprinting all twelve of them month yep. by month. That's, yep, and that's will, my understanding. Yeah, and I will be getting them. Yeah, I already uh, put that on my order. It sounds like an exciting new series. What do you think will happen? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you tell everybody again? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because God knows, you know, this would be a pointless podcast if we didn't talk about the ending the whole way through. Could you imagine if we had to go back all 12 issues and say, oh, well, that happened there. Come on. Well, I happen a- to have all 12 is- original in the original floppies, so I won't be getting the reprints. But, um, yeah, I really what I loved about the floppies were the back covers with the, uh, the, the blood. I mean, it's in the trade, of course, the blood slowly coming down the clock, but getting that month by month and seeing it, you know, slowly come down the page with each issue was really, uh, you know, vis- visually jarring. Another thing, too, is if you guys have been watching eBay, the original floppies, especially the graded ones, um, are going off the charts as far as eBay costs go. Maybe I should cash mine in. The next edition that came out after the first trade back in 87, and this is kind of one of those sought-after pieces, and this one goes for huge bucks on eBay, is the uh, Graffiti Designs put out a slipcase hardcover in 87, that had 48 extra pages of, you know, design materials and kind of, you know, the director's cut behind the scenes stuff. And I think that one on eBay now is going for what, 250, 300 bucks or something, at least that. Yeah. My buddy Ron actually has that uh, edition, the graffiti edition slipcase. He also has the, uh, the Watchmen portfolio of art prints. I think there were originally uh, promotional pieces of art that Dave Gibbons did, but they were large, Bristol-board-sized reproductions of black-and-white prints from uh, of uh, Dave Gibbons' art, uh, promotional art from The Watchmen. They're both uh, seriously cool, and I've thought about breaking into his house and stealing them several times, but he is a friend of mine. So, Let me ask you guys this. Was this huge as it was coming out, or was it a total after-the-fact phenomenon, or... You know, like you're saying, there was uh, there was art portfolios that were you know made. So, how big a deal was this? You know, after issue one, or did it take time to develop? Or, well, you got to realize the um, that it wasn't really a mass market appeal type comic, but among comic fans, it was huge. Um, there really wasn't a lot of merch that came out with it. I remember there being a set of uh, buttons. I think, uh, like you know, pin-on buttons and the uh, art portfolio and the graffiti slipcase edition. And that was about it. it. Um, as it came out, I mean, the people that were reading it, the comic fans who were tuned into it, were really, uh, you know, I mean, it was very popular among my, my friends who read comics at the, at the time. But as far as making, like, a mass market impact, like, you know, you know Iron Man or Dark Knight what does now, it, it didn't at all. So it was very much under the, a lot of people's radar for a long time. Right. But it... It sold well. I mean, it, it you know wasn't like an instant sellout kind of thing, but from what I've I've read, it it sold you know well. It you know it did well in the shops and you know wherever it was sold, they had you know pretty good sell through numbers. Exactly, among among comic fans, it was huge and very popular. But that you know it's a much smaller subset even than it is today. Yeah, and it, I mean, it didn't garner you know enough for a second printing or anything like that. But I, 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 during you know during that time, there wasn't a whole lot of second printings either. I think they just you know they they overprinted a lot more because, you know, I think back then there were a lot of places um, still that retail outlets that had, I, I remember the Walden books that I used to go to in the mall by the house carried it monthly. And I always thought it was odd because it was, you know, a you know, very adult book. I didn't get it at the time. Shame on me. Um, 
I, I just wasn't that big into DC at that time, and that's just kind of how I saw that book was a DC book and a, and a limited budget, you know. Um, but so you know, with the returnable aspect to it, you know, I could see where. Uh, the thing about you know, they, I say the other thing about whether or not they did reprints, reprints or not, there probably wasn't at least not an as sophisticated system for tracking sales like there is now. I mean, they can pretty much know in real time how something's selling, either based on pre-orders or actual sell-through at the retail level. Mid-80s, um, you're just starting to have, you know, even modem use probably in retail locations and in, in the comic shop, you know, probably nothing. So modern is monitoring sell-through and whether or not you even need to do a reprint is probably still difficult to do at that point. Yeah, and there wasn't just one distributor either. I mean, it wasn't just Diamond. There were, you know, what, at that time, three or, three or four distributors? Yeah, like I said, among among the uh, geeks at the time, it was super popular and the cause of a lot of uh, discussions and arguments. Um, but, I mean, after the 90s came, we had million sellers. I mean, I don't know. I guess it's all relative. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, we, so we've got the, the, the 12 issue singles. We had the, in 87, the graffiti design slipcase hardcover. And I don't believe that was oversized. Um, I think that was just standard size slipcover. Um, and then in 05, we got the, the absolute, the first printing of the absolute, um, where there we had the, the, the big thing about the absolute, other than, of course, it being oversized, which is incredible for this, for this book or any of the absolutes. I mean, if, if any of you guys are on the fence about an absolute, it's hard to find a bad one out there. Um, but the big thing with this edition was the recoloring, where, um, where, you know, uh, Gibbons went through and, and, and they, they recolored the whole thing, um, with John Higgins. And it really was a, was a big deal, you know, given the, the better printing techniques they had, um, nowadays and the oversized printing, they really could kind of give it the justice it deserved. Hey, speaking of Gibbons, um, have you guys seen the solicits for watching the Watchmen, the hardcover that Dave Gibbons and, uh, Chip, uh, Chip Kidd are putting together? Yeah. Yes. That's going to be uh, crazy. And I'd also say, uh, if you guys are on the forums, there's a new thread we put up, the Watchmen resource thread. If you guys come across anything, whether it's articles or stuff about the book or whatever, toss that up there. That's open to everyone, not just uh, the dudes. Um, but um, from the interviews that are on that thread that are talking uh, to Gibbons, evidently um, he had some preliminary Nighthouse sketches from when he was a kid, like uh, 12 or 15 or so. And uh, I definitely think that the, uh, this book, especially since Chip Kidd's involved, he did, um, Dan, Chip Kidd's the guy that did, um, what's the Alex Ross book that we both have? Uh, he did, uh, he did oh, mythology. mythology. And he's, a, he's actually, he's also the designer of most of the Absolute covers. Um, he's actually kind of a DC exclusive graphic designer. He, also did, a, does. he did a really excellent book on the Batman animated series. Animated series, yes. Batman animated, and also about the collectible side of Batman. I think it's just called Batman, with a lot of toys from his own personal collection and from collections all around the world. He's a great yeah. graphic designer. Yeah, his books are awesome. He, he's done all the cover-to-cover books, I think. Yes. So it's yeah, he's done a lot. It's stickered at 40 right now, but on Amazon it's 26. Um, there's definitely going to be a kitchen sink approach. Um, with that book, they're going to toss everything they can into that. I'll, I'll guarantee you that. That's going to be um, released. What is it? October twenty-first. So there's kind of a, a compendium companion to go along with that, Russ. Yeah, it's the day before my birthday. So if any uh, you listeners out there want to get me an early birthday present, you know what to get me. <laughs> and Gibbons has been out there pimping it big time. I mean, he's been he's been talking about it every everywhere. 
So, yeah, I'd definitely be wanting to check that one out. I'm just looking through uh, my previews here. Uh, we talked about the, the number one new printing. We mentioned Absolute Edition, uh, fifth edition, fifth printing coming out. We also have the Watchmen International Edition trade paperback um, listed in previews at 19.99. But there's also three books related to the film. We have Watchmen, The Art of the Film, uh, Watchmen, The Film Portraits, and then Watchmen, The Official Film Companion. So a lot of resources as far as bringing, the, bringing this to life on the screen. And I'd say, like, just as a rule of thumb, my experience is that usually movie books and movie compendiums aren't that great. I mean, the Lord of the Rings and the Star Wars stuff that went along with the with the movies were pretty good, but I kind of look at movie books and um, stuff like that kind of the same as I look at uh, action figures for, and uh, <laughs> that are licensed properties. They're not usually that great, but um, I'll have to flip through it and when all that stuff starts hitting shelves and just kind of decide there. But it's not something I'm locked into like the Dave Gibbons book. Right. No, absolutely. The um, the art of the film does look really interesting. And plus, looking at my uh, DCBS um, order form here, they're all thirty percent off. So like forty bucks becomes twenty eight dollars. But what really jumps out at me is both the absolute edition. Instead of paying seventy five bucks, you can get it for forty five dollars. And Watchmen number one, it's not a buck fifty. It's a cool ninety cents. So I might get two. Yeah, that's a great deal. I, I, like I said, I can't stress the absolute enough. If anybody's on the fence about the absolute, um, you know, get it, especially if you can get it, like, through DCBS and um, get it at that discount. It's, I think, full cover on it is 75 so, yep. um, you know, even at 40%, 50%, that is a steal because yeah. it, it's just incredible to look at it in the oversize. It's got the ribbon and the extra materials in the back are just phenomenal. Um, you know, it really takes you through the, the, the whole process where it started as, you know, being all those Charlton characters and how you get to see the progression of the Charlton characters to the, you know, to what they ended up becoming their own, you know, and how close they were to, to some of those and a lot of the notes on what characters they um, they followed through. So it's it's just outstanding. Um, the other edition coming coming soon is going to be the, the, I guess, the international hardcover um, with a new cover by Gibbons. And it, it also, the, the cool thing about this would be the first time in a re, kind of a regular-sized hardcover format that it has a recolored um, book. So if you're not really, you know, wanting to spring on the absolute, then that would be a good, you know, a good addition to get and, and get that recoloring. That's a real weird uh, arrangement that DC's done because usually DC releases the hardcovers first, but in this case they released the international edition trade, what, a month ago? Maybe a little yeah. bit more. And then now they're releasing the hardcover after? And yeah. that's exactly what they did for V for uh, Vendetta when that came out a couple years back. And I the mean, other, just go ahead, Russ. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is I don't know if you guys listen to John Mayo. Um, he does the local, shout out to my local Austin, Texas gather. He does the monthly, The he has an article um, on CBR every month where he talks about the numbers and, and on trades and. Um, singles, and one of the things he said was DC is allowing uh, comic shops to sell tra- the Watchmen trades on consignment. So they'll little, they will literally ship you the the trades as many as you'll you'll take, and you just put them out there to sell. And then whatever you don't sell, with I think it's between now and end of the year, like or mid December, whatever you don't sell, you just ship back to them, and um, you only pay for what you sell. That's what they did with Fifty Two, right? Uh. No, 52 was just that they were returnable, um, where the store still had to pay a certain percentage of the sale. So if you ordered, like a 52, if you ordered 
100 copies and you sold, you know, 30 and you wanted to return the other seven, you would only get credit for a certain percentage of the sale. With this, this is consignment. So if, if, if DC ships you 100 Watchmen trades, you sell 50 and you get to December and you don't think you can move the other 50, you just pay the shipping to ship them back and that's your, that's your only cost. It doesn't, it doesn't actually cost you anything. Now, are they going to actually have to ship it back, or are they going to follow the bookstore model, which is just tear the cover off and throw them away? From what I understand, they'll actually ship them back. Right. And then they, can, then they can probably put them back out into the, uh, the bookstore market at that point. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, it's, it's no risk. And, um, you know, like John pointed out in his podcast, I've Austin Books, the local shop where I have, they literally have in the front window there a whole display case, and the trades are facing. They're not even spine-facing. They're they're front facing, and they've got probably two or three hundred of them, and they're plastered everywhere. Does anyone know? Is there still in in just ordinary monthly comics? Is there still a distinction between the direct edition and the uh, the newsstand edition? You know, be on the cover or otherwise. Um, yes, and I know because Marvel, for at least their monthlies, if you buy monthly Marvels or at least most of them, I don't know about DC. Um, if you buy them like at a, a you know Barnes and Noble or you know. Um, Hastings or something like that. If the, the regular issues are three ninety nine instead of two ninety nine, oh, wow. they're 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 a buck more to buy them outside the direct market because they still have that returnability to them. I ask because there's there's not any kind of distinction on a trade. Like the trade is a trade, whether it comes from a comic book, comic book bookstore or a, a regular bookstore. Is that right? Some of them, I know a lot of those hardcovers they solicit. There's a dark, direct market only, which is usually like a different cover. Um, I know a lot of the Marvel stuff. If the, I think the direct market only uh, versions are the actual like first. Usually, it's the first issue cover on the book. Whereas the direct market they use, or I'm sorry, the retail market they usually put a you know fancy cover on there to kind of you know be a little more attention grabbing. Okay. And I don't think I got that. Back. Hopefully, I don't have that backwards. But I think that's yeah. the case. I'm just wondering if they could do what I just suggested, which is to say send the books back from the comic book store, and then DC can reissue them out to. Ordinary, regular bookstores. Yeah. Well, I think anything through Diamond is not returnable. So you know, most of the shops, even whether whichever edition they get, they're, it's it's going to be through Diamond. So right, they'll, they'll be stuck with them. Right, but this deal DC is doing with the Watchmen, making it returnable, is that going direct from DC, or is that still being go- is that still going through Diamond? From what from what John said on his podcast, they send them back to Diamond, which I'm sure what Diamond's going to do is just probably send them back to D.C. So right. Okay. Probably do exactly like you said, just put them in the bookstores. Because the, the version in the, you know, the, the standard trade isn't any different between the, you know, bookstore and the um, and the comic shop, at least for that. Yeah, that's a long way to get to that point right there, so. Yeah. So, Russ talked about what his shop's, local shop's doing. What are you guys seeing across the country here? I know Russ is in Texas, Dan, Jim, and I are in Pennsylvania. What's there, and Ken, what's everybody else seeing at local stores or local book retailers? Uh, I'm not seeing a lot at local, uh, my LCS. Um, they have their same thing they've always had, pretty much. But uh, the local borders that I shop at, uh, it's gone It's gone pretty crazy. They have them all over the I'd say they have them laid out in about four or five different locations across the store. Man, my local uh, comic shop, they, they have it on the, as you walk in, he's got the front end cap with uh, like the hot books for that week or the hot up-and-comers, and he has that trade right on there. Um, I haven't asked him or he hasn't commented if it's been picking up at all specific, specifically. Yeah, my LCS has a whole table of them out um, of nothing but Watchmen. 
And uh, I've also seen it at Borders, Barnes & Noble. I was at uh, Books A Million here in Virginia on vacation. I saw them there. Um, but I think as many as they sell before December, after the movie comes out, they're probably going to sell you know, almost as many after the film comes out, just from people seeing the movie and, you know, oh, I want to learn more about that, you know. So, so I don't think... So do you guys think that that 900000 they're going to print in the next year, do you think that's modest? Do you think they're undercutting it? Do you think they're overshooting it, or what? I think it's overshooting a little bit, um, but hard to tell. You know, it just really depends on, I think, how well the movie does. I think if the movie cracks $250, million, which which is kind of a bit of a stretch, I think if it cracks that many, I think they'll sell, I th- I think they'll sell it. If it's a moderate hit, you know, if it, if it kind of has a big opening week, you know, makes a hundred pretty quick and then tapers off because people, it just, it's not what they thought or it's not their cup of tea, then I think it'll cool out really fast. So I think, I think the movie's going to drive it. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Do you think this is the type of book that, uh, people who aren't comic fans are going to relate to? No, not at all. We had, um, my first, uh, year, uh, at school, we had a book club, and um, one of uh, the teachers picked Watchmen. And this is a movie-going audience, too, so with the book club, uh, I, I was really surprised she picked it. And everybody completely trashed the book in the book club. And that was a group of 15 people, um, all age ranges from, you know, 20s to 60s. And um, uh, the, the two of us out of the 15 were the only ones that, you know, had an appreciation or an enjoyment of it. Um, they didn't get how to read the sequentials. They didn't get the characters, they didn't understand the level of violence, and this is, you know, men and women, too, so I I don't think so, Adam. I I, I, I don't think that's going to happen completely. But I can see how it's weighty enough to not be completely welcoming to the medium. I had the opposite experience with my wife, who's kind of only geek by osmosis or geek by association with me. Uh, she saw the trailer for the film and was interested enough to read the book and did and really enjoyed it a lot. And other than a couple of questions that she had for me about the uh, the characters and the plot, she wasn't at all confused. She understood the context of the time because she's you know close to my age. She remembers the 80s, and uh, she enjoyed it a lot. So I, don't know, I guess it just depends on the person. Yeah, I, I think it might be... A case of you get it or you don't, you know. I don't. I don't know if too many people are going to be changed into fans of of this type of thing. But I, my wife's first experience with it was that you know the trailer before Batman, before the Dark Knight, I should say. She turned to me and yeah, she same said, with mine. "Yeah." She she turned to me and said, "That looks weird." And I said, "Yeah." So uh, you know, I get it. She doesn't. So <laughs> yeah, common thing for me as well. That's when you turn around and say, no, you're weird. <laughs> I guess, Russ, the other thing, the other uh, medium that's come out, like you mentioned earlier, was the motion comics, which we're going to talk about later in, a different, yeah. in another discussion topic. But um, yeah, Number two finally just came out. So Yes. And their release schedule is um, every two weeks now. So not this week, but the week after it should be out. Cool. Can I ask you guys a question? Have you seen the, the issue two of the motion comic? Totally. I have not. Did they get a female cast member yet? <laughs> oh, no. No, they didn't. <laughs> my only beef with the whole thing, dude. I know we we're going to use this as a discussion topic down the road, but that's my only beef. No, I haven't I haven't seen it yet, but how is that any different than a uh, having an audiobook read to you, especially one who actually tries to add inflection or somehow make the voices, but still 
maybe a male reader trying to read female roles, how is it any different other than maybe you're seeing the artwork? I think this that's a lot boy, of it. It's just ain't cutting it, dude. I'm yeah, sorry. And I, I think he just failed. It sounds like, do you, did you ever watch C-Lab 2021 where Captain Murphy tried to talk like a lady? That's what this <laughs> looks like. All right. Yeah, I think the big thing for me was is like you can, you can see who's talking. I mean, because I, I, I've heard audiobooks before where there's female characters and it's not as huge of a jump because I can just kind of get past it because I'm not like looking at it while it's happening, you know? <laughs> I would think <laughs> I would think that, you know, it, it's it's a motion comic, so it's not really an audio book. I, I think of it more as, like, kind of a cartoon light sort of a thing. They All could right. spring for a female voice actor. I mean, but it's going to get real weird in issue seven. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll conquer that when, we're, when we get a little further the doctor girlfriend. When Sally Jupiter, uh, who could be someone's grandma, uh, sounds like Bruce Valanche, that's <laughs> probably... Or like Harvey Firestein or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, if it's, that's I the case, they, I can understand what you're talking about then. I think they recruited... Oh, Dan! The, <laughs> oh, Larry. <laughs> they recruited the uh, anti-monogamous Legion of Dudes for that casting. Let's just put it that way. Let's uh, let's save this from heading right into the gutter and uh, start up with the cover of issue five. What about that? Yeah. Yeah, let's dive in. <laughs> so issue five cover, again, the same format that we've seen for the first four. Uh, it is it is a representation of the first panel. And right off the bat, we see um, what is going to be the theme of this issue. I mean, this issue is called Fearful Symmetry. And um, if you go through the issue and compare pages 1 to 28, 2 to 27, and, you know, so on and so forth, you'll find that the book is an exact mirror image of itself from a panel layout perspective. Um, and in some, some cases, it's almost a mirror for content as well. And then, as we'll see when we get to the middle, right when we get to, to you know, to page 14, 15, is where, is where that connects. And it's just a really awesome, awesome two-page splash that we have. It really is. I'd love to know what those pages are, are, are going for. I couldn't even imagine. But... But that's where, you know, 1415 is where it all combines, and pretty much everything on opposite ends is a, is a complete mirror image of itself. So it's, and, and not only from a panel layout perspective, but we see a lot of things that, that coincide to mirror images or looking through glass or reflections um, and, you know, uh, palindromes, all those kind of things go on in this issue. So as we see, um, starting right off the bat, we get that where there's a, a, a place called Rum Runner, and uh, their little logo is the is the R's that are mirror image of each other over a crossbone. So, you know, literally their logo is is a you know mirror image of itself, and we see it in the first panel reflected in the water. So again, we're looking at a reflection of a sign that is a, that is a mirror you know mirror image of itself. And if you think about it, uh, the skull and crossbones that's an upside down smiley face that's not covered too, and the raindrops could be like the blood. Exactly, and if you notice the way the way the rain falls and the drops, it's it's kind of from that you know upper left to lower right, you know matches the you know the way the, the you know the splash you know kind of hits on the uh, uh, you know on the smiley. We get the big you know the big Im- impact and then the, the bleed down from from that motion. I like the alternating coloring with you know a red panel and then a normally colored panel and then another red and then in the second row it's 
one red in the middle and on either side is a you know different colored panel yep as you can see in the third panel the bottom row there the sign is is black suggesting that the sign is flashing blinking which is where your coloring is coming from yeah well, that's that was blinking um in issue two when the comedian was talking to Moloch. Hmm. yes it was right so see that you know Higgins finds a way to, to work in the coloring, you know, the environment around it. So we've seen a lot of this alternating color, and usually it involves, you know, you know what I call like a quick edit, you know, where you're you're dealing with, you know, one panel is in one place and the next panel is in another place, and they have kind of that opposing color scheme. And so we see, you know, here just like we saw before, where it's, you know, we're in the same environment. They're just using a lighting of a sign to, to show that alternating, you know, between the two. But visually, it's just it's just has a great effect to it. One of the things um, that we see on on page one again is you know what kind of what we found out from the previous issue is the newspaper on the ground that says you know Russians invade Afghanistan. So again, they're kind of reinforcing um, you know between you know originally this was month to month, so now we're into the, you know it's been 30 days you know conceivably since you read the last issue. So you know they're throwing that out there again to just keep that fresh in your mind that this is you know this is what's going on and this is you know what's going to really start affecting people between now and the rest of the book is. Uh, you know, world politics. And imagine it's also indicating this is all the same night or within a day of those events happening of Dr. Manhattan leaving. So of a timeline of sorts, this is all fairly close together. Yeah, yeah. So moving to page two, we kind of keep the same alternating, you know, scheme of, with color. So, you know, conceivably that light's going on and off. And I don't know about you, but I think that would drive me in to drink and have buggy eyes and pale skin all the time if I had to live in an apartment that had that going on all day. That's like the Seinfeld episode where Kenny Rogers moved in across yeah, the street and Kramer went yeah. nuts. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking of. But it's funny, when we see Moloch here on page on page two, it, you know, he, it, he doesn't have his teeth in, you know, he just... It, I don't know what it, what it is, but he looks so much older. I mean, it's only been a few days since really we last saw him, and he looks like he's aged about ten years, um, just in, the, in that short span of time. Well, maybe he's um, maybe he uh, did he wake up? No, he was what? Did he wake up in this? Is he in his pajamas? Because he's got a bathrobe on. Yeah, I think he was woken up by the noises he heard. Yeah, That's yeah. The suggestion I get from his uh, initial dialogue on page one. In fact, in the second panel on page two, it looks like he's tying his robe on as he's sitting there. Yeah, yeah. So then we see one of the things I noticed in panel four, I move on to page three, looking at the fourth panel there, the the Gordian Knot Lock Company, that's the same company that did yep. the lock at, um, at Driver's Place after Rorschach you know, beat in his door. And as you can see, history has kind of repeated itself here, and his door's kicked in. Yep. And then I love... I love. He sees, you know, the 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 thing sticking out of the fridge, and just has this uh, this kind of flashback moment. So the first thing he does is kind of, you know, quietly approach the fridge and open it up, expecting somebody to come, you know, burst and hot of it. So then he finds, Moloch finds the note that Rorschach, Rorschach left him a note in there that's fold, folded exactly in half, and his sig it, it says behind you, and uh, you see his signature is both. The R, a mirror image of the R, on itself, and also kind of a you know the 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 Rorschach the inkblot symbol, you know where you get the, the, the way that he he writes that um, 
you know, his signature, so to speak, kind of looks like a, the inkblot has that pattern that shows up on his uh, on his mask. I like how, um, you know, on on page two, he's saying, um, you know, if that's how you want to play, and he's getting he's getting the gun out of the drawer, you know, like he's gonna defend himself, and then as soon as he realizes it's Rorschach, he he hands it over right away. <laughs> I wasn't gonna I wasn't going to point it at you. Well, Ken, have you finished the book yet? No, I still haven't. You're still doing issue by issue. So let me ask you this. At this point, completely fresh, and nobody say anything to give it away, what what do you think's happening here, or what do you think's going to be happening here as as a new reader? Well, nearest as I can tell, reading through this whole issue, um, it's it's pretty clear to me that, that somebody is setting everybody up. I'm confirmed more that what we said last time about... Um, uh, the cancer was not caused by Dr. Manhattan. It was caused by something else. And I don't know yet how Moloch is figured into that, how, how he would be getting cancer unless it wasn't deliberately given to him. Um, there's a bigger thing going on right now, but I really don't have a quite the idea of what's going on, what's going on yet. Um, in fact, I don't even know if I would be suspecting um, uh, Veet at this point had I not been clued into it back on issue one. Because I don't have any reason reason to, but I'm seeing more of his symbol everywhere. I'm seeing more of his stuff going on. Um, in fact, this issue would probably conf- you know help solidify the idea that he's not involved, based on what happens you know midway through the book. Yeah, we're almost at midpoint. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this issue does a, a much better job of kind of carrying on the conspiracy aspect to what's going on. You know, we kind of got a glimpse of it in the beginning. And then for the last few issues, we've kind of been rotating around origins, and we haven't really touched on, you know, the whole conspiracy of somebody's, you know, killing folks off, and you know what, and you know what's going on. And this this issue, I think, does a good job of uh, of kind of keeping that keeping that part of the book alive. It definitely moves the plot further along uh, than the last issue did. Yes, yes. Then we find out, you know, again that Rorschach comes back to Moloch to kind of question him more. He's had time to kind of mull things over a little bit and um, find out what's going on. So he, he questions him about the, the cancer list that um, that the comedian had and how everybody was on it. And he's just he's really trying to find a connection um, to, to what's going on. So he comes back to question Moloch. And I, I think at this point, even though he... It's kind of weird. He, he, he almost... He questions Moloch about his involvement and kind of hints at it and, and talks about it, but I truly don't believe at this point that that Rorschach thinks that he's the the one behind it or he's the culprit. So he, he, you know, it, it, it's kind of like this double double speak, double meaning. You know, he says one thing and does another, but I think in his heart he knows that it's not Moloch. But I think he's kind of putting the screws to him a little bit to find out, you know, if he knows anything else or if he's holding back or hiding something or, you know trying to get more, a little more information out of him. I think he knows that Moloch is weak enough that if he makes Moloch think that he thinks it's him, he'll crack and give up whoever it is, if he knows. Plus, this is the way Rorschach operates. This is how he gets information. He doesn't have a back computer or a trouble alert or whatever. He works guys over until they talk. It's funny, as we were just uh, speaking about that, I'm watching uh, Rorschach crack an egg on the counter. Yeah, as yeah. he as he grills Moloch, <laughs> and then lets it kind of looks like he lets the yolk fall on the floor, and then just kind of drinks out the the rest of it, and then just lets it all drops the shell on the floor. 
I think it's funny how he puts, you know, in the, the first the first encounter, it was Rorschach in the fridge busting out, and in this one, it's him trying to shove Moloch into the fridge. Right. So again, we get that, that juxtaposition. Looking at looking at page six at the top there, the it looks like there's a bottle that there's a bottle in the fridge, and it almost looks like that. It's the same like the nostalgia bottle. You know, it's got that rounded, you know, look to it with the cap on it. Yep. Maybe that's another one of those uh, subliminal circular like clock faces that we've been finding all through the book. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I wanted to say that on page six, we get some more of that sweet uh, stream of consciousness, beat-influenced uh, Rorschach journal entry type stuff. And once again, no matter where he goes, he leaves a mess behind. You know, it's just he's just such a slob. He'd break into somebody's house, kick the door in, and then just, you know, make a mess out of their house and just leave. But again, you know, you, you, you get this sense of, of, you know, more and more paranoia, you know, going on from him. And then at the bottom of six, if you look at the largest, the, the, I guess it's three, the sixth panel, that largest panel on the bottom of page six, the trash can, the lid to the trash can almost looks like a you know smiley face where you got, you know, the, the, the handle looks like a nose and the way it's shaded is kind of in that, you know, the, the, the smiley part of it and the uh, you got the dot for the eye and then the raindrop coming down hitting it like right where the other eye would be. So you're going to get that large <laughs> smiley face going on. And all the, this is something I noticed in this book more than, in, or in this issue more than the others, is all the splashes tend to have that same motion to them, you know, that same kind of look, you know, that's almost that splatter effect um, that that we see. And, of course, that, you know, goes back to kind of the splatter effect on the, on the smiley. Did anybody else get mad when they read page 7? Like, this is me just speaking as, as a dad. I'm reading page 7. I'm just getting mad and aggravated. Um. Especially when you get to that, I think that seventh panel, and you see the the imagine the girl's shoe with the Snoopy on it. I was just like, whenever I see something like that, something like that, and even in real life, I just get completely enraged. And and I really had that that reaction to reading reading this whole pa- passage. I, I can I can sympathize with you on that, uh, Ken, because what did uh, what did Rorschach say a couple issues back? Crazy enough to be true, right? And if you look at the current um, financial situation in the country. Um, they had the same thing happen um, a couple weeks ago yeah. with, I yeah. think it was, a nine, what was it, a 90-year-old woman um, was going to get for her house foreclosed? Yeah, and, and she shot herself in the chest. Um, and, you know, she has, you know, since recovered, and I think um, one of the congressmen or senators have, you know, vowed to, you know, help her out with the situation. But still, I mean, desperate times, you know, not necessarily call for desperate me- measures, but, I mean... <laughs> We had the, the unemployed, had the unemployed dad who did exactly this. He killed his family yep. and himself. Yep. That's uh, actually that. I'm not sure if you're referring to the same one, but that actually happened the next town over from me. Really? Just yeah. last week. Yeah. I believe I am talking about the same one. Yep. So and then they he lit his house on fire. Maybe not. It was this was in a oh, gated community. What what happened with yours, Reed? Uh, the something happened with. I'm not sure if exactly uh, too much the details of why it had something to do with the financial crisis, but uh, he ended up killing his uh, wife, his daughter who was pregnant, and uh, lit the house on fire and uh, shot himself just about 10 miles away from me. I watch I watch politics and stuff on MSNBC, but I won't read the paper. That's one thing I won't do almost anymore, seriously. 
as brutal as it is, I think I think more is trying to set us up for how much fear. And, and as the series goes on, it's almost like the fear of nuclear war is palpable in the air. And it's almost like it reaches a crescendo as the book goes on. I think this is part of him laying the groundwork down for that in a very brutal way, I must say. Yeah, I mean, something like this, even in today's comics, it's it's not it's not something you even see a lot. I mean, you know, where where you get this kind of you know a brutal tragic scene going on. I mean, some of the you know some of the more indie stuff you would, but um, at, you know, at the time, I can't even remember anything where they would show you know this kind of event taking place, like you said, with you know kids and everything else. So to me, this just showed you know it just it it just shocked me in the you know that even today you could read something like this and it would take you aback. Um, you know, and, and I couldn't, you know, imagine, you know, reading this in 85, 86, not seeing anything like this before going, whoa, you know, they, they, they you know, turned the corner on this one. Yeah, I think the image of, of the foot is a big deal. You know, I yeah. mean, you might, you, you read some comics with, uh, you know, maybe like a Gotham Central or, uh, you know, some even some Batman where you might hear of a gruesome murder that they might be talking about, maybe children involved once in a while, but just the image alone of the child, you know, and they're only showing you a foot, but still that's a pretty that's a pretty strong visual. Yeah, there was an issue of uh, Gotham Central, John, where uh, Mad Hatter took out an entire uh, Little League softball team. Oh, man, that killed me, man. That was hard to read. <laughs> that was really hard to read. Right. And I'm sure they didn't even show any image of any of the kids at, at, in part at all, right? I mean... Um, more or less. All right. Well, we, we look on the, the wall there behind the door, and there's, a, there's a, like a poster that says, today is the first day of the rest of your life with a, a flower on it. So you got this, you know, kind of positive, you know, message going on in the background, and here this guy's just taking out himself and his whole family. Well, there's the skull and crossbones like the Rum Runner on the Grateful Dead poster. And yeah, the other yeah. one was, what, no nukes? And then yeah. there's the triangle symbol above the... Oh, I don't even want to guess. Um, is that Buddha? Yeah, I believe it's yeah, Buddha inside a, inside a triangle. With a uh, splatter mark in the upper left-hand corner, just like we would see on the smiley. Right. The, um, the other triangle we see is obviously from Adrian, but then the other one is the, um, it's a, it's a newsstand when uh, Joey hangs the poster up for the uh, Pink Triangle concert. That's right. going to be coming pretty soon. Yeah, yeah, we'll get, we'll, yeah, that'll be coming up here in a bit. I'm looking yeah, at, we, um, go ahead, Russ. I was going to say, we see that, you know, it's the, the two cops that are on the scene here are the same cops that investigated the comedian's murder. And, oh. you know, again, you see these guys are kind of both, you know, jaded and clueless. You know, they they don't even, you know, think about it. They kind of blame it on, um, you know, they start talking about Haley's Comet and Russia invading. And then, you know, the one tells them, oh, you know, you can't, you know, you, you know, you can't, you know, get in, you know, get too attached to it. You got to, you know, almost like you got to distance, you know, yourself from it. You know, the one guy says, so you want to go get some breakfast? And the other one's like, yeah, you know, it's like I couldn't imagine. And I know some, you know, obviously people are used to seeing this kind of thing you know, not maybe not specifically, but you kind of desensitize yourself to a little bit of it, but I still can't imagine even a hardened detective seeing this kind of a brutal murder scene just being like, you know, hey, yeah, let's just go, you know, go out for breakfast after after looking at that. 
And if you compare these guys to what they what they did when the comedian died, they were completely uh, doing the whole game plan. Like this is what happened here. This is what happened here. And you know they have no words. There's no game plan. You know I think you know good shows and good writing like uh, The Wire, for example, with Detective Bunk and um, McNulty. You know they have that back and forth interplay between and you know these cops who, for all intents, you know they're the, they're the cop buddies. Um, for this, and we'll see them again later on. They've got what, what does he say? The media inspires boredom, not waking up one Monday morning and butchering your kids. That takes something else, man. That takes a whole different kind of inspiration. You know, that's 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 a pretty big indictment, if you ask me. Yeah. And the other thing that I kind of took note of is they talk about Ali's comet coming, and then Russia invading Afghanistan. And it's kind of funny because during this time, those were you know, R- Russia really was invading Afghanistan, number one. And number two, Halley's Comet was a big deal. I mean, I don't know if you guys are uh, old enough to remember, but, you know, everybody, you know, that's all, you know, everybody talked about it and everybody wanted to see it because it was kind of one of those once-in-a-lifetime deals. You know, unless you yeah. were, you know, seven or eight years old, you probably weren't going to see it again. Well, it's wasn't the, wasn't Halley's Comet also linked to the, um, what was that cult out in California, Heaven's Gate? No, that was uh, another comment later on. Yeah, Bob. Okay. Bob. I must have missed that flight. Looking at page eight, we see right off the bat, we see the purple, you know, the purple triangle. And again, we see kind of a splatter image going on there with the round circular motion. So again, it's a theme that just keeps coming on. And we're into page eight and we get the first um, stuff on the the black freighter again popping up. So um, as we'll see from this point on through almost the rest of of the issue, a lot of what's going to go on in the Black Freighter comic that we either see on panel or we, you know, or, or we get flashes of what's going on in the Watchmen world and the and the you know the kind of the thought balloons on the comic they kind of parallel each other and what's being said in one has a relation to to what's going on in the other. Have we gotten a full page of the Black Freighter yet, or is this the first time that I know we've seen the Black Freighter? Did they give us a full I, page of it before this? I don't think so. I think yeah, I think you're right. I think this is the first time we actually see a full a full page of that. If you look at the uh, bottom of page eight, the page that's facing away from uh, from the kid reading it is the next page, the whole next page we're about to read on page nine. Does anyone find uh, that to kind of be intrusive on when you're reading, or do you find that meshes well? I can I can understand how the story is mirroring each other. But sometimes it feels like it's kind of intrusive on what I'm trying to read. That's just how I feel. I totally agree. I, and I now that I've been through the book a couple of times and everybody tells me how important the Black Freighter is and everything, I'm still fighting off skimming it. I mean, I find myself having to go back and reread because I, my eyes just pass it over. Because like you said, you want to get to the next part of the story in real time. And uh, you know, you, you just have the tendency to skip over this stuff. I do, I should say. I know, I know what I've done lately since I finished it off last week. I, I couldn't help myself. I, I, I barreled through it over the uh, last weekend. Um, one thing I did was I'll read The Watchmen first and finish a page, and then I'll go back and read The Black Freighter on top of The Watchmen. So not read it twice, but do one and then do the other. That way I know what's going on in the story right. enough to follow that thread from the top of the page to the bottom of the page. So I'm doing just the opposite. I'm reading it all together because I'm 
as I'm reading it, I'm looking for the connections between the Black Freighter and between the Watchmen. I'm, I'm, there's a reason that these Black Freighter passages are where they are, and I'm looking for the meaning. I'm looking for the why this is at this point, and how they interact. I'm looking for that interaction. I'm looking for that mirroring. Yeah, I found it tough the first, maybe in the first two times I read it, to, to read them at the same time. So I think I'm, I'm just as guilty of every, and everybody I, I've talked to that's ever read it has pretty much done the same thing. They've, they've either skipped over the pros, skipped over the black freighter, and then they wait until they kind of, you know, get it all. And then when they go through and if they've read it again, or like I've read it again, I think on the second or third reading, I've, I, I've, I've trained myself to, to read it more. And then, you know, now as we'll, as, you know, as we talk about it in depth, we see that there's a lot of parallels to to you know one versus the other. So I think, in a way, in a way, you're doing yourself a disservice by by not reading it all together. But in the way, I think you I think you're not because it lets you get through it. Because I think there's that anticipation of and the mindset that all of that stuff is doing is just slowing you down. Plus, I mean, look how hard it is. We we don't even know what the purpose of Bernie the news Bernard the news vendor and Bernie are at this point. We don't even know their names. I mean, when I got here on on page eight uh, last weekend, I was like, you know what? We'll just read a page of dialogue from Watchmen. When that page is done, go back up and then hit the Black Freighter. It was just easier because can I mean, talk about confusing and uh, distancing at arms uh, at arms length. Uh, for for new readers or new new people, and I know this is not for new people, but I'm just saying, geez, that's a lot to swallow. Let alone process, digest, and then spit back out. Well, at this point, as I'm reading um, reading it again for the first time, one issue at a time, I'm just seeing Bernie, the news re- the news vendor, as as the commentator, as the um, the everyman's watching what's going on. He, he's he's just sitting there. Commenting on Doctor Manhattan, commenting on the murders, he, he's he's the everyday guy on the streets' point of view, and and that's how I'm seeing him right now. Now maybe he becomes more than just that. I don't know yet, but for now, that that seems he seems to be fitting that role well for me. I think he does that, but I also think the cops do that too, Ken. They're they're also giving it from a little bit different perspective as well. I mean that's that's a little more that's the establishment, the government, the man, if you will. This is this is the everyday you know working class guy in the street, um, his point of view. I think all these additional smaller characters really give you a, a connection to the real world on what's going on at the same time, and, and kind of making it more than just a superhero story. Yeah, I agree. I, I definitely agree. But one of the uh, you know as we talk about how you know what's being said on the panel, and by the characters matches what what's going on with the Black Freighter. You know, if we look if, looking on page eight on that third panel, you hear um, Bernie going, "Sure, this war is looking serious." Makes the guys start figuring escape routes, you know. And then the the quote from the from the Black Freighter is, "It was then I can see the building a raft." So again, you know, he talks about people you know building an escape route, and this guy's talking about building a raft. Exactly. Um, Sorry. I see just, you know, this is just peppered in, you know, throughout the rest of the book, pretty much everywhere you um, you see that. I wonder if he did it panel by panel, like tit for tat, or if he did um, the Watchmen um, narratology first and then did the Black Freighter or vice versa. I'd be really interesting to find out how he did these panels just as a reader because, I mean, for your brain to process the visual plus the two texts at once, 
plus multiple speakers. That's a lot. I'm not saying it's unaccomplishable. I mean, it obviously is. That's why I think the book stood up. But um, that's that's getting pretty complex here because you're dealing with not only that but a frame within a frame too, like uh, Frankenstein or any of the other um, you know uh, big huge uh, stories, even Hamlet, for example, like a play within a play. But um, has anybody ever eaten seagull? Because page nine's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'll pass. Thank you. That reminded me of the uh, the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Uh, mariner, right? The albatross. What was that? Um, Coleridge. Whatever you say. Just remember that. <laughs> we see how he's kind of turning into this. You know, the character in the Black Freighter is just turning into this savage. You know, it's it's funny. He's he's on a quest to go warn you know and save his wife and warn all the townspeople and everything else. That you know these savages are coming, and you know, you know, as he as he moves on his journey, he's the one becoming the savage. Especially that last that last panel on page nine is just unbelievable. Where he's... I'm sorry, I need to ask Jim how how did you prepare seagull when you serve it in the restaurant? Albatross, get your albatross. <laughs> does it come with crisps? No, it doesn't come with bloody crisps. It's an albatross. <laughs> I don't like spam. I don't think we uh, really run the albatross so much on the gypsy menu. So. Okay, right. just just ask him. But if they did, it would not be raw. I take it. I don't really. Rec- I don't recommend uh, our our listeners or readers try bird sushi. No, would um not a good idea. Would bird sushi. Would seagull be considered a fowl, like a chicken? Oh, it's fowl, yes. or just fowl. Both. <laughs> If you look at the mast on the next to the last panel, it looks like the smiley face with the blood stain on it. Yeah, yeah. And most of the time you see it in, from that perspective, it's always has a yellow tint to it. Uh, just what Russ was saying about um, how he's turning into the savage and, and he's supposed to, you know, be trying to get home to warn everybody and and all that. It's almost like who, you know, who watches the Watchmen. You know, it's kind of like a parallel there, like. They're great and powerful, but who's keeping an eye on them? You know, he's trying to save everybody from the savages, but who's going to keep an eye on him? But I don't think it's necessarily savage. I mean, by the, well, I guess it's coincidental that it, it turns savage because, I mean, he's in survival mode, guys. I mean, it's like, what, kill or be killed at this point? Yeah, but I, I think it is not even, I mean... Yes and no. I mean, yeah, he's trying to survive, but it's more than that. He's not, if he was just trying to survive, um, you know, he, he would just be, you know, doing, I, I would think, things that a normal person would do to just survive. You know, build, you know, build shelter, you know, find a source of water, find a source of food. He's, he's getting obsessed. I mean, he is obsessed with, I have got to get off this island as soon as possible by whatever means necessary and catch up to where I'm going. And it doesn't matter what I have to do or, or you know, kill, maim, you know, um, you know, um, you know, defile graves, you know, whatever it takes, I'm going to do that to get to my, to the, to the, to the end. Um, you know, and he just, in the process, he's losing himself. You know, he thinks, in the, in the beginning, his intentions are noble, but as, as the book goes on, or the comic with the comic within the comic goes on, he gets more and more, you know, savage, more and more brutal, and loses sight more and more of what is, I think, what his in, in, intended purpose was. You know, I think what he intended to set out to do and what he ends up ultimately doing are, are almost 180 to each other, or are completely 180 to each other. And everything you just said totally foreshadows what happens later on in the book. Not to you, Mac, anything. 
I am not a verb. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on between nine and ten. Um, again, we get another one of these cinematic transitions where we get the, you know, the, the last panel on page nine is the is the Black Freighter character gnawing on a on an on an albatross, and then you get the beginning of page ten with Dan sitting there chewing on a chicken leg. Dan's expressions on this page are, you know, they're priceless. He he's, I I don't know if it's her that's affecting him this way, but he's always got this worried or like this terrible look on his face like something really bad is about to happen. Definitely get the Ted Cord vibe from him in this issue. Yeah. Do you guys think, just a little bit of an aside to the movie, do you think the guy in the movie is, like, too perfect to play Dan? I mean, given how he looks in the comic, and like I said, you know, we kind of mentioned before, he's kind of a schlub, and you see the, you know, Patrick Wilson, the guy that plays him in the movie, he's kind of this, I don't know, you know, handsome, you know, you know, well, you know, built looking guy. And, and, you know, we look in the comic and, and we see how Dan is in the book. And it, it to me, it, it helps, you know, understand his character a little more. So I'm, I'm curious as to when we finally do see the movie, how that's going to play out. Well, Dan as Night Owl in his prime is probably going to be, I would think, more like what you're saying the actor is. You know, it wouldn't take much as far away as far as makeup or, you know, you know, costume dressing to make him look more like Dan. We're seeing him in, in these panels. You know, okay. the older, the older Dan. Um, but the only one shots I've seen him so far, I think, are the uh, uh, costume. You know, in the in the costume, in the night owl costume. They said, but also in the past, in the flashbacks, when he would have been more fit. There's, I've seen one of the photos I've seen is 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 him and Lori walking side by side in the prison. Yeah, and, and we'll get to that later. And he didn't look. I mean, one of the things that they said definitely is going to happen in the movie is they're they're going to they are going to accentuate the fact that when he was young he was fit and trim, and now that he's older he's kind of you know a little bit lumpy and overweight. And costume laces up nice and tight. I guess so. I just I just I just haven't seen it, you know. And even in in this, when we see him in the costume, he still kind of has that look to him, you know. So anyway, I just I just thought I'd throw that out there and see what you guys thought about that. Well, look at even any Steve Martin movie. They can do wonders with makeup. So. <laughs> or uh, what's his name? Martin Lawrence. Never mind. Not Steve Martin. Oh, I'll shut up. Big now. Mama's <laughs> Roxanne. <laughs> Wait, you, yeah, so much Roxanne. <laughs> you know, on the jerk, he was all full of makeup and stuff. And he had the white hair. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were making a comment about how they it took it take him that much work to get Steve Martin to look as he does, you know, Normally, it, yeah, took that's a, what it took a lot of special effects work to get that arrow through his ears. <laughs> that's true. Steve Martin, Martin Lawrence, um, both not funny. So, <laughs> great, you just alienated half our listeners. Short. <laughs> Twin separated at birth. Martin and Ron. Um, the, thing, the thing about Ten that really struck me when I reread it was um, how. Lori is like the personification of his old life, you know? Like he's being seduced not only by Lori, but by the lure of being a superhero on the suit, taking Archimedes out for a spin. It's like she's the personification of everything he really has been sublimating in his own desires for all this time since uh, the Keen Act was passed. And you can tell one of, you can tell in that middle panel on 10, he literally wringing his hands over wanting to just ask her to come stay at his place. 
You know, he it, it's you could tell he's. I mean, like John was saying, the look on his the looks on his face, he, he's just agonizing over it. The other thing you'll notice too in 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 this issue, especially when it comes to Dan and Lori, is most of the time when you see them, we're we're seeing them through a mirror image. So when you look at the top of of ten, you know, all the word balloons fly off the panel, and that's because they're. You know, we're looking at them as they're sitting against a, either a shiny piece of glass or a mirror. I miss that. Wow, you're right. Yeah, if you look at, at that third panel, you can see she's facing she's facing a mirror. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of got her back to herself, and then Dan is in the middle panel. You can see the glass marks kind of on the on yep. the on the fridge, and he's looking back at the mirror to look back at her. I just realized we're seeing the sh- her shoulder in that middle panel mm-hmm. from the real. That, that's great. And we'll we'll see that. I mean, this will this will come up a couple more times when they get um, throughout throughout the, the issue. At the bottom of page ten, we've got you know it says we're both leftovers, and as they're walking away, you see the leftovers on the table. So again, it, you know what we're seeing with Dan and Lori, where you know either you know old you know outdated models, you know that with reference to the to the auto thing, and then here we get you know the food reference where they're both kind of leftovers. Then we get to, to page 11, and we get the, um, you know, we're back to uh, Rorschach's journal, and we get a, a, a pretty lengthy entry here, which we haven't seen for a while. This is a full page of nothing but, you know, Rorschach outlining what his, you know, his next move is. And the cool thing about this page is this is all from Rorschach's perspective. So this is a first-person view of, of, of what's you know of of him looking out at, at the world and what he's seeing directly through his eyes. I, lo- I like that page uh, that plate on the first panel uh, is a looks like a Rorschach ink blot on that plate. Right. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Looking at his watch. You know, and then again, he he takes his mask off, and you know, as he takes it off, it's that symmetrical you know ink blot pattern on there as he, as he puts it away. I like how he starts referring to the mask as his face and yes. and and I think there's also a part where he said, you know, he I think he calls himself in costume when he's actually not in costume. You know, like he has the whole in his mind the whole thing is reversed. The real Rorschach is with the costume and the mask on and the disguise is the street clothes and you know his face exposed. Yeah, almost, almost kind of like that, you know, the Batman dichotomy. Right. And then, and then we see as he's coming out of his apartment, he sees his, his landlady, and he, you know, it's kind of funny. He he makes a comment about you know uh, you know about her you know being a little fast and loose, so to speak. And you can see she's got three kids all clung to her, and they all look like they they definitely don't come from the from the from the same father so to speak um huh. so kind of a, you know again it kind of a, accentuates um you know his, his opinion of her um which isn't very high not that she has a very high opinion of him i really love the last line in the last panel of this page you know i, I was watching the trash can and new york opened it's hard to me now, what do you guys think of the shadow of the people that he says possibly indulging in sexual foreplay? Um, you know, they're always there. They that shadow is there repeatedly 
from now on and you know obviously where the person should be stand where the people should be standing to have that shadow you know nobody's there i i i think it just has to do with the whole foreshadowing of the, you know the whole apocalypse the whole apocalypse theme that keeps coming back you know one of the you know things that you know happens in a nuclear blast is if you know people are standing in front of a of a building their shadow gets permanently imprinted on you know what's behind them so as as all this talk of the apocalypse is increasing. Here we have, you know, you know, people painting, you know, what would be two figures, I guess their last embrace or whatever, as, you know, as, as the nukes go off and just permanently affixing them to whatever fixture they're standing in front of. That's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. I, I think they only show up in Rorschach's point of view. In other words, you know, when we're getting his journal entries and it's hit and it's the telling from Rorschach's end, I think that's the only time we see them. So I was kind of thinking that it was like his imagination even, like he he's psychotic, you know, he's creating like illusions in his own world type thing. Well, you can see in the in last the three panels the gang coming up to spray paint it on the wall. Oh, they're yeah. spray painting that. Yeah. yeah. And that actually oh, is a kind yep. of a, it's kind of a nod to I think I think that happens in the next issue. Dan has a dream where he and Lori uh finally kiss and they're in that exact same pose and they're kind of like ripping each other's clothes off but then underneath they like kind of rip each other's skin off and they're like the old costumes again and then a nuclear bomb explodes and they both get burnt into the wall in that pose so that's kind of a i guess a nod to that i didn't i didn't pick up on this in the in the in rorschach's journal in the middle panel he says out in the street inspected defaced building silhouette picture in a doorway i just saw a silhouette and in my mind, I didn't realize picture. Yeah, I'm, I'm right with you. I didn't realize that that was graffiti at all. Yeah, and then when we move on to, like, towards the end, you'll see a panel where it's not from Rorschach's perspective, and you'll see that, that image painted on the uh, on the building. Wow. There's also a nod to uh, the question in that bottom middle panel. It's an upside-down question mark, which is obviously kind of the inspiration for Rorschach. Yeah, right? yeah. And then, of course, it's, you know, he folds it in half, makes the ink. So, again, we get this, you know, again, the symmetry, mirror image, you know, all that, that going on. So, moving, and then when we get to page 12, we see even more of this again, um, of, you know, of symmetry or, you know, things kind of folded in half. We see, you know, the newspapers folded in half as, as he's reading it. We get to the next panel, which is the cross and, and an arm, you know, the, his arms on each side. So, again, it's kind of a, this panel is kind of a, you know, kind of a mirror image of its of itself. You know, for the for the the main images, and then on the third panel, you get like his um, the newsstand guy. He's got his little, you know, cot or whatever that he sit, sits on, which is kind of that X pattern. That also kind of is a that in and of itself is a is a an X is a mirror, you know, from vertical or horizontal. And then again at the bottom of the panel again, we see the reading the newspaper with it folded in half. And again, more parallels. You know, with what's going on in the Black Freighter to what's to what's going on in in the in the Watchmen world, where especially when we get to, to panel six on on page twelve, which says, "See apathy. Everyone escaping into comic books and TV makes me sick." And then we cut to the Black Freighter, where the gulls slaughterhouse chorus afforded no distraction from my nausea, and I fell retching to my knees between my raft raft timbers. Bosun Ridley stared up at me. So again, they talk about you know. Something making one of the characters sick, and in the in the comic panel, the guy's you know puking up raw seagull. Page thirteen, we get 
we get Adrian, where again we we get another you know mirror image where you know you look at the cufflink on on the table and everything on that table is is you know mirroring off of uh, a mirror image of what's you know what's above it. So you get the the, the name plaque on the on the table, the cufflink. Um, you know, the, 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 his assistant is reflected back at that. So a lot of the reflection going on and um, at the at the top of that of page thirteen. Does anyone know if there's any um, like any meaning behind the symbols that are on his keyboard? Because none of them are actually letters; they're all like just weird hieroglyphics, almost. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I kind of I kind of think maybe he sort of has his own sort of written language that he uses to keep everybody else out. Like, he sort of writes everything in code to himself. Yeah, could, that could very well be. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that before. Uh, I, I've never seen one. I've never seen one to know, but is it, is it possible it's like a stenographer's keypad? You know how they have a special key set for uh, taking those? I don't know why he would have one if it is that. But if it made something similar to that. Yeah, I've yeah, never seen it, one. It almost... The, yeah, because the symbols almost look almost hieroglyphical, you know, where you've got, you know, squiggly lines going one way, the other way, you know, weird symbols. Yeah, I'd go with yeah. his with his fascin you know, with his fascination for Egypt, and you know, it wouldn't doubt me if he had his own computer language or a special keyboard to be able to do the glyphs that you know he wanted. And there's one of those airships out the window again behind him in the second panel on the top. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's funny, his assistant even comments about how, you know, everything's so morbid with all this, you know, ancient Egyptian, you know, you know, almost like death worship that's going on and, you know, what a, you know, kind of a downer it is. And then we get to uh, to the attempted murder of Adrian Veet um, at the at the last panel on page, page 13. And that's going to lead us into this great the middle of the book the middle of our symmetrical book with this fantastic two-page spread without one word of dialogue it's all just told in the action yeah this is just incredible and this if you guys have seen the trailer this is that spot in the trailer where they show it it's almost kind of in that you know i guess what's become that typical Zack snyder fast stop motion thing kind of like they did in 300 where he grabs the um cigarette, the ashtray stand or whatever, and swings it around and whacks the guy with it. Right. I don't know if, you, if you'd seen that in the trailer, but they kind of... Oh, kind of that high-speed film yeah. Right. Yeah. thing? Yeah, where they use stop motion and high speed kind of all at once to kind of give you that power. Well, even as you're looking at these panels, it almost plays out like that. You know, you can almost, you know, like in your mind's eye, you can see the, the frames in between each of these stills to, to get to that. You yeah. It's very dynamic, and just you know, again, as we talked about, since the theme of this issue is symmetry, this is this is where it all converges. So we're at, you know halfway through, and here you know one side you know mirrors again with layout, composition, and just the the image itself. We get we get the where the book comes together, and even the the pool of water he falls into is another mirror image, another reflection of the action going on above. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And on the the bottom right, the the blood that gets splattered um, lands on his corsage, I guess, or whatever that is, and it. So, so you get the yellow circle with the blood splatter, just like the smiley face. Yep. Yep. And then it 
of course, his secretary meets a untimely demise, or what apparently will be an untimely demise. <laughs> that was this whole thing actually going back to right before the double page spread. It all came off kind of lame to me. I mean. They're coming down the escalator. She says, oh, God, twice. Look out. He's, you know, and the best Adrian can do is watch her get shot in the chest and then take the guy down with an ashtray. Yeah. Seemed like he would be able to react or notice quicker than that. Being an ex-superhero, smartest man in the world or whatever it is. Yeah. And he seems a little bit kind of cold to the fact that she's dead. Yeah. He doesn't. He's not really concerned about it. He just kind of sits down and says, "Well, cancel my meetings." You know. Yeah. Now, knowing that he's involved with with what's going on, is this a hint? Is this a suggestion? Now, because I don't know exactly how he's involved with this, but was this a setup? Was this this guy and his attack all part of uh, each plan, or is this independent of whatever he Adrian was doing? No, this is this is all. If we're going to go full bore here, yeah, this is all part of part of it. Right, so I mean that. So his reactions, therefore, I would believe, are a clue to that. You know, just that. Yeah. You know, he, he, this wasn't a surprise. This all happened the way it was supposed to happen to him, and it was almost too calculating. Yeah, I think later on we'll find a little bit more information about how this didn't happen exactly to plan, from what I, if I understand, if I remember correctly. And then, of course, with the whole you know poison capsule and and all mm-hmm. that you know misdirection going on. As you guys think back to your first time you've read this. Did anybody else think at first that that the shooter was Rorschach? I did, no. yeah. No, I didn't. I, I thought only because of the, of the red hair and the, the the facial structure is basically the same. And I went back and wanted to see if Rorschach was wearing an earring or not, and I saw he wasn't. So then I'm like, okay, fine, it's not him. But I just, I, just he just resembled the, the 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 guy carrying the sign too much. We did not think it was him. My first read through, I actually thought, and I guess we'll get to it in the end, but I, I really thought it was going to be some one of the old schoolers that was kind of behind what was going on, like you know the original one of the original Minutemen that was kind of behind this whole deal. But see how it ends up playing out down the road. But that that was kind of what was going through my head at the time. Is I saw this guy as a as as a patsy, but I I, I didn't see it playing out the way it did. Get on to page seventeen, and again we see. Rorschach in the background carrying his, his sign, the end is nigh. And then on the sixth panel on that page, we kind of see a close-up of him you know, holding that sign. Well, again, going back to his the, the, the Rorschach carrying his sign and finding out who his identity, identity is, panel eight, as you see him over the news vendor's shoulder, you see the sign is set down, he's looking through the garbage again. That's the, the, his message drop waiting for uh, Moloch's uh, note. But what's really telling there is the news vendor's comment. I bet there's all kind of stuff we never notice. Ah. Specifically referring to Rorschach and the garbage. Yeah, we had a we had a forum member comment on that. We'll get to that after uh we're done with the issue. I can't remember who it is now, but somebody had alerted us to uh look over the newsman's shoulder. I didn't notice it before that. <laughs> I I didn't either, yeah. I didn't catch that at all. No, neither did I, but then when I noticed it, and then I saw, I read it again, I read the comments, and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's talking about that. That's great. And then we get, if you look on the bottom of 17, again, we get the sun, which is almost looking like a you know smiley, where you got what looks like two little dots for you know the eyes, and then, of course, the bottom you know, kind of has that, you know, the bottom of the circle, so it almost acts like a, you know, the smiley face. 
Right, and the way the the way the ripped sail kind of hangs over onto it, you get that drop effect. Mm-hmm. And a reflection in the water again. Yeah, 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 yeah again the mirror, the mirroring. Moving on to nineteen, or I'm sorry, eighteen. One of the things I noticed, I, I we get another Rorschach journal page, you know, where where he goes on, and I, I look back and. It says Rorschach's Journal, October 21st, 1985. So I kind of went back to the beginning, and it's been nine days since the comedian was killed. So I just I thought that was interesting to kind of see where you know, five issues in, and you know how much time is is passing. You know, in in the book, it's it's easy to just think, you know, all this stuff just kind of happens strung together, and and not get a real sense of how much time is passing. So so we're a little over a week after the comedian's been killed, and we get on. On the fourth panel, we get another one of the Who Watches the Watchmen that's that's kind of half shown or a little bit shown on the right edge of that panel. We get the the WH and then the you know the, the W and then we get a little bit of it. So it's it's mostly cut off. Like like we said, we we never actually see it fully spelled out anywhere in the issue. You also get the nostalgia poster behind where he uh, collects his gear, and then in panel eight, the the way the attacker is standing next to. Um, uh, his victim is very much like the uh, the graffiti that we saw earlier. Yep. And then uh, again, another great Rorschach line. Sometimes the nut is generous to me as he's about to uh, go to town on the mugger. Right. Yeah. And then he, I love it when he's he's putting on all his stuff and he says, "My coat, my shoes, my spotless gloves," and there's junk all over those gloves. And of course, his face. Yes. This is what I was talking about in in panel six. I had spoken about it earlier a little bit. Putting them on, I abandoned my my disguise and became myself. So he's actually putting on his disguise, but in his mind, this is him, and he's been in disguise when he's in street clothes. Right, Rorschach is who he is. Uh, right. Dan's got that worried look on again on 19. <laughs> Dan's, Dan's a little frustrated at the end there. Yeah. Wouldn't you be? Yeah. Here's this woman who not only symbolizes the whole lifestyle that he walked away from and, you know, a very seductive lifestyle, but, I mean, I'm sure he's pined away for her forever and ever, you know, fighting crime together and whatnot. And then, you know, good night, Dan, sweet dreams. Think of you like a brother. Bye-bye. As I take my shirt off. <laughs> and what's her age approximately? Because she was really at, young. Yeah, I think we put her at 37 at this point. So she's probably yeah. 10 years younger than Dan. Right. But still definitely an adult woman capable of making her own decisions. Yeah, and she hits the spin classes, I would say. Yeah. Hell and damnation. I've had that feeling a few times. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, countless times this Dan has been in that position. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to page 20. Um, again, we get the you know the shark. If you look at the last panel on the on the page, we get the shark who, when when he drives the spear through his eye, you know, again, we kind of get the, the whole, it's yellow in color, yep. we get that whole smiley, you know, blood stain on the eye thing going. And the color, when he when he rears that, you know, pole up to, to, to stab the shark with, we just get that blood red coloring on of the of the character. You know, everything around him, you know, the, the pole's still brown and, and the background still has color, but he, he's just, you know, they, they color him just blood red, you know, while he, he performs this... You know, vicious attack on the on the shark. On uh, on twenty one, again we get more of the you know the the black freighter stuff going on while we're you know see what's going on in the in the in the real world. And on the third panel, um, we get we get 
um, Bernie going, "Hi Joey, how's the Promethean?" Still bringing light to the world. And then the comics on the black, or the comments on the Black Freighter is, "Relief was fleeting. My prospects still dark." Again, we get you know kind of the, you know the, yeah, the inversion there of the the light yeah, to the dark. Yeah. And this is where we get what uh, what Adam was talking about earlier, where um, again we have a you know the coloring, the purple coloring. We get a pink triangle, you know, to signify um, you know this this woman's you know, women's group. And again, it's you know another visual clue where we get the coloring um, as well as the triangle image going on. I got to go off topic for one second, Jim. You're a you're a uh, metal fan from the past. Have you ever heard of the group Guar? Anybody? Guar? No. <laughs> I've heard right, the well, name, but not the music. I've heard of them. Yeah, they're they're, they're, they're uh, really they're a really bad metal band. They're totally gimmick. They put on huge they, like armor and makeup and prosthetics, and they like you know throw fake blood into the crowd. It was a huge gimmick thing. So as I'm looking at the pink triangle uh, poster, you know, gay women against rape spells out guar. Yep. So I'm thinking, you know, I, they were around in the 80s, probably the late 80s, so I'm wondering if they pulled their name from the Watchmen. Possible. Yeah. It just seemed so, like, as soon as I read the poster, I saw oh, guar. Anyway. Yeah, I would have I never never caught that. As we're, as we're reading this, I just noticed... If you look at the general shape of the uh, of the shark and his jaws and the reflection of his jaws, it very much mirrors the uh, the image of the triangle with the, uh, the 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 feminist symbol with the the jagged edges inside the circle. Yeah. Oh yeah. The other thing that was a little interesting is, you know, to kind of parallel this a little bit to, to Nazi Germany in 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 Nazi Germany when they when they branded I guess you could say mm-hmm. gay men they the, they were the pink triangle with the point facing down so it, it's it's interesting that in you know here they chose to use the triangle with the point going upwards so it's almost kind of like an inversion of you know what you know what's been you know what was what they were persecuted with you know for for a period of time in Europe and that um, the other the other comment to make and with the walking the family friendly line here, but it's pretty common in the vernacular is in, in this world they don't call them lesbian women. They're gay women. So it's 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 interesting in this world that they've they've decided to that that that's how how gay women are, are known. They're not they're not referred to as lesbians, they're referred to as gay women. Well how are they how how were lesbians or gay women generally referred to in 1985? Because I, mean, I just don't even remember. I don't think I've even heard the term at that point. Being all of you know 13, maybe you know, is that just was just simply called gay women? Maybe no, yeah, or it could be a difference between uh, American vernacular and English vernacular. With I mean, this being ran by an English person, it, I mean, I know the term has been around. It has been around much longer than than that. But general yeah. use. I'm thinking of general use. Yeah, I, I remember that being a, a general use term, you know, back in the '80s. That I just don't even remember. So, yeah, huh. it's funny now that you you guys have mentioned the sharks a bunch of times. You know, the the sharks' fins are triangles, so there's triangles everywhere. Yeah, you know, every time they go to the Black Freighter stuff now, there's just triangles everywhere. So, moving on to twenty-two, page twenty-two. We get, we're back to the to the two detectives that are investigating 
you know, everything that's going on, the same guys that investigate the comedian, the same guys that went upon the grisly um, murder scene, and the the one detective is, is kind of getting after the other one who's is really not doing a whole lot of anything other than staring at different pieces of evidence. And um, it looks like the older detective is, is actually doing some casework, and he pulls up the file on, on Edward Blake, the comedian, and if you look at his case number or his file number, it's eight zero one one zero eight, which is a you know a mirror you know eight oh it's eight oh one and the reverse would be one oh eight. So right. and it's kind of a kind of a mirror. It's a palindrome, yeah. I guess, with numbers instead yeah. of yeah, a numeric palindrome. If that if, if there is such a thing, um, but two and it, it shows these guys are just absolutely clueless because you know they have all the evidence in front of them that kind of pieces things together. There's all the things publicly that are going on and. Like they don't put it together that any of this is interrelated at all, you know. That that, that they don't see there's any connection to, you know, to anything that that that's going on. So I just I just think it's kind of funny. And then of course when the phone when he, when he answers the phone and it's in you know with with obviously an anonymous tipster tipster and he keeps saying shark raw shark, yep. which which is funny because the you know the black freighter stuff we just saw was you know the shark he was getting attacked he, he by a shark. shark, yeah. So now we see raw shark, and you know, boom! It's like the light clicks. Nope, it, it's Rorschach, not raw shark. Right. <laughs> so they kind of boogie on out of there to go to go. They think, I think for them, they think this is a big, you know, their big break is, you know, not only can they, you know, pin something on somebody red-handed, but they're also going to capture Rorschach, who's kind of been, you know, for the most part, a wanted a wanted man ever since the Keen Act has been put into place, and he decided not to retire. So on page twenty-three. We see this is pretty much at least the first three panels is are identical to the first three panels at the beginning of the book, and then we see Rorschach entering Moloch's place again, and we, we see, again we see the silhouettes, and then the cutoff on that right side of the panel is right on the the what would be the left half of a mirror image of the Rum Runners place, which I'm assuming is a is a bar, and then we see the the lock has been. Looks like the lock has been replaced and the door fixed. At uh, it looks like he broke. He's broke in again with a new, yeah. a new plate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the lock is definitely the lock definitely looks different than it did if you go back to the beginning of the book. Yeah, um, he's got the reinforcing plates on there now, which didn't still didn't yeah. stop him. And he just comes on in, not thinking anything is uh, is any different, and just kind of goes on about his theories on on you know what's going on with this whole this whole process. Until he comes up upon Moloch, who's been shot clean through the head, sitting in his chair. Dead center of the head, creating two symmetrical sides of his face. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Plus, Rorschach mentions some uh, uh, villains we haven't heard of before, like uh, the King of Skin. Yeah. So up to this point, I think the only villain we really hear about is Moloch. I think in the Under the Hood stuff, they, they kind of talk about some of the guys they went after in the early days. But yeah, not in the in the regular book itself. We haven't really talked about it. And I think Rorschach has his uh, his oh darn moment uh, right about now on that on that that last panel, the last um, I guess it's the fifth panel. There, he's he's definitely going to need it. This... A, a change of clothes here. <laughs> need a change of pants too. Um, yeah. does, any, does anyone reminded of the similar scene in Batman Year One? Yeah. So they have Batman cornered in the tenement, and he's all by himself, and he's fighting against a whole uh, a SWAT team. Yeah, definitely. 
And uh, we also see so images from this in the trailer, too, um, from the next uh, action sequence. Rorschach fighting his way out. Yeah, he grabs the, the can of hairspray and the lighter and just, or the, well, this, I guess the match, and and just goes, you know, has a big, and it's, it's, in the trailer, it's kind of from a different perspective, you know, in this, we see it from behind, and it looks like in the trailer, it's, it's, it's front on, head on, yeah, yeah, which I it, it definitely, cinematically, that's a, that's the better choice, you know, he, he gets into that survival mode right now, he's, you know, he start he realized he's kind of hosed right about now, so he's, he's looking around for anything he might be able to use, you know, picks up pepper, picks up the, the, the hairspray, Picks up a box of matches. You know, he's he's preparing himself because he knows he's he's going to have to be pretty desperate to get out of here because he knows that it ain't going to be pretty if they if the cops catch him. And then of course he uh, you know throws the pepper up to to distract them so they can't shoot him, and then pulls out his uh, his gas powered grapple gun and hits that cop right dead smack in the chest. Point blank. Yeah, and I mean to me, I don't know what you guys think, but to me, there's no question that he killed that cop. No, I yeah, think so, absolutely. Yeah, I don't yeah. think there's any way to get around that. Yeah, and, you know, I think up until this point, you kind of, you didn't see Rorschach going to this point. You know, he was rough, and he wasn't afraid, you know, to kind of be unruly with the scumbags. But, you know, here he is against, you know, the police, you know, whether or not they're, you know, corrupt or, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, whether whether that's how he's justifying his own mind or not. But this is where, you know, Rorschach kind of turns the corner. Um, and he, you know, to, to the, it, you know, there's no, his, his, his morality to me at this point is, is, you know, took, took a turn. Yeah, it's almost like he's trying to will himself, uh, use the power of his own will and perspective to get himself out of the situation. He uses his environment. He tries to get out of the window. And then when he crashes through the window and lands, he keeps telling himself, get up, get up, as if by sheer will he's going to be able to escape. But unfortunately, I mean, he's, um, and limited by his own physicality. And then, of course, they proceed to beat the tar out of him and then take his his mask off, which, you know, again, like Jim said, or John said earlier, you know, he, he sees that as his face. You know, that's what he's, he's screaming, no, my face, give it, you know, give me back my face. You notice as, as his face, as his mask is being removed, even his, his voice balloons, his dialogue balloons are changing until finally, once it's revealed, he's speaking in normal, complete sentences again, or at least such as what he says is. It's not... Yep clipped anymore it's just even though he didn't take it off he still switched back yeah and we can tell it's definitely not when he has the mask on because we've seen a couple times where he's pulled it up above his you know nose and mouth and he still speaks in that yep. you know his his, his his word balloons have that have that same feel to it so once, his voice is definitely different yeah once it was completely then, off is when it changes yeah and then we get the and it's just funny how they you know they they don't believe that this guy is the guy that they, you know, the terror of the underworld, the guy they've been looking, you know, for all this time, um, and that, you know, they're going to lock him up with, you know, with all, with all, basically all the people he's helped put away over the over the years. And then, of course, we get the last panel, which is pretty, pretty much the same as as the first panel. The uh, William Blake poem from which we get the uh, the title, uh, "Fearful Symmetry." is about the attraction of evil. Um, and one of the themes, anyway, in Blake's poem, a tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry. It's about the seduction of, um, of evil and the seduction of, uh, of danger and, uh, and fear and how we're drawn to those kind of things. 
in one interpretation, and I think that's the one that fits most aptly uh, in the Watchmen context. Doesn't one of the cops a couple pages earlier say something about tigers? Yeah, he said, uh, he said, and remember, here be tigers. Watch out, he doesn't. And then, you know, boom. I did, when I was doing some research on the internet, apparently this is kind of a parallel a bit to the, to the black freighter in a way. Yeah, here be dragons, right? Right, 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 right. Yeah, so, so this is kind of an illusion of that where he says, here, and here be tigers. Right. I think here be dragons, they used to fill in, um, Maps like if if they didn't know an area on a map, they'd put here be dragons just to say that it was an unknown area and to be careful. They foreshadows this whole theme of um, you know staring into the abyss. The abyss stares back, which is the quote from the next issue, and then you know fighting monsters lest you become a monster, that kind of thing. Right. Very Nietzschean idea. Yes. So that's that's the end of the regular issue, and then the prose piece. I don't know if you guys. I got. I, I do have some notes on the prose piece. Not. I don't have a whole lot. Um, but it's interesting how this is basically like a, a short history of uh, an excerpt from a larger history on um, pirate comics, which is kind of funny because, you know, nowadays we have books on, you know, the history of, of the superhero comic and comics in general. You get like, I don't know if you guys ever read um, any of the Tomorrow stuff, either Alter Ego or Back Issue or any of those. So this this kind of has that, you know, it, it, when I read this, it... it I, after having recently read some, you know, issues of um, back issue, it kind of had that feel to it, that same kind of style um, to this excerpt. And it's kind of interesting how they, you know, they, they use real people, you know. So here we are in the fictional world, and they talk about, you know, Joe Orlando. They talk about Julie Schwartz. They talk about uh, Alex Toth, Gil Kane. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting how, you know, they, they – and then Max Shea. So, you know, in, in – in this world, when the when the the Black Freighter first started, it was written by Max Shea, who we we've seen earlier in the book. This is kind of where we finally find that Max Shea is the writer of the Black Freighter, who's also missing, and uh, and that it was drawn or penciled by Joe Orlando, who really at at this time was an editor at, at DC in 1985. And then how it goes in this whole history of how the you know when the Black Freighter first started and. Um, you know, that it was Shay and Orlando that drew it, and then Orlando had felt like he was kind of being upstaged by Shay, and then they bring in another, a newer artist, and then Shay kind of leaves for the same reason Orlando leaves, and, and they, they go through this whole kind of history of how the Black Freighter came about. But the other interesting thing is in the beginning, how they, they talk about how the government almost came out in favor of superhero comics, where in our world, the government came, pretty much came out in in, against them, you know, where we kind of had the whole Comics Code Authority come in and superhero comics almost disappeared completely um, for a while in the 50s, and we went back in, you know, back into, you know, war comics and romance comics and, you know, some of, some of the other uh, stuff, and it, and it worked, you know, worked out. We got rid of the, the, you know, the horror stuff went away, and, you know, like I said, in this world, they, they, the government kind of came out in favor of superhero comics and bolstering them, but because the real world was filled with real-life superheroes, they kind of fell out of favor in that, you know, it talks about how, um, e, you know, EC Comics um, grabbed a hold of that pirate theme and, and, and then, you know, what, what ended up became coming national, you know, then becoming DC was the one that, that ended up publishing the Black Freighter. So it was kind of interesting, um, you know, how, how this history that they're, they're telling here you know, relates to, to some real-world events that cross over and some real stuff that was going on in, with DC with, you know, 
real writers and artists. The other thing we find out in the prose piece is that the actual Black Freighter comic that's going on inside the Watchmen is our issues 23 and 24 of the Tales of the Black Freighter. So it's an issue, um, a story called Marooned. So we find out that you know everything we're seeing in, in the comic in the Watchmen as far as the Black Freighter happens over two issues. Now, not to jump too far off because uh, we're running long already, but um, my understanding is that the Black Freighter is going to be like a straight-to-DVD animated movie that's going to come out with the release of the movie on DVD? Yeah, the movie will come out, I guess, Friday, and the following Tuesday, they're going to release a 20-minute DVD of the Black Freighter. And then, Aren't they doing Under the Hood, too? I can't remember if that's going to be part of that or if that's what they're going to stick in there um, when the thing comes out on DVD, they're going to add that, the Black Freighter and then the kind of the, yeah, almost like under the hood and some other interview kind of stuff in documentary style uh, stuff to it. I can't, I can't remember. I believe it's supposed to come out with uh, with the Black Freighter DVD. It's going to be kind of like it? its special features. I thought it was supposed to be a little bit later than, than that following Tuesday. I thought it was supposed to be like eight days after the movie is what I thought I heard. Yes, I think it's, well... Maybe it's if the movie comes out on Wednesday, it's whatever the following Tuesday is. Oh, okay. Is the plan, because the, the new movies come out, you know, the DVDs come out on Tuesday, movies come out on typically Wednesday or Friday. So if, um, whatever, how, however the, the timing is, that's that's the plan. I can guess, just I imagine guess the, what the, uh, oh, go ahead, Dan. Oh, no, no, no go ahead. I was just going to say, I can't even imagine what the final, like, collector's edition, quote-unquote, watching DVD is going to look like. Considering how much extra stuff he shot, and you know the the web log of the production's uh, diary, and all the Dave Gibbons stuff, it's just gonna be a monumental amount of stuff. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It's gonna end up being like those special edition Lord of the Rings, where they're like five hours long, and it's just gonna be like a shot for shot remake of the comic book or something. That's kind of what I'm envisioning is gonna happen. Yeah, That'd I definitely sweet. think they're gonna try and double, triple dip this one. Well, I'll tell you if. Uh... If if everybody follows suit on the uh, like the Iron Man Blu-ray, go for it. I mean those documentaries and everything in HD are just awesome. I know that's totally off topic, but <laughs> I've been no, debating on getting that. Is that is so the Blu-ray is worth it? Oh, it's oh, the yeah. real deal. Yeah. It's always worth it. Oh, yeah, yeah, did, yeah. No question, no question. And it's the first one. You know, again, not to get too far off topic. It's the first one where really they, they made a concerted effort to keep as many of the extras in HD as possible. I think everything on there pretty much is in HD. Absolutely. A lot of these, especially the older ones where they've ported over these kind of first-gen Blu-rays, they're all, a lot of the supplemental stuff is all standard def. So. Yeah, because I don't have an HD TV, but I, I kind of want to get it just because of all the extras, like the Hall of Armor stuff and all that. Yeah, there's, that, that was a little underwhelming. Yeah, that was probably the weakest of the special features, the Hall of Armor, but, uh, you know, the, the documentaries... Unbelievable! Like, what does it have? Like seven chapters, Russ, of all the different parts of making the movie. Yeah, it was. It literally. It's a. It's an almost two hours long, and it literally starts like day one. John Favreau shows up for work, kind of thing. Um, and even some of it is even before that, like before Favreau. You know, some of the early, early concept stuff they talk about, but most of it is kind of Favreau's journey from like day one on the set. Um, before they even hired Robert Downey, and I mean, it, it's really, really good. It's and you know, it's legit because he's like 350 pounds at the beginning of the documentary, and, and by the end, 
Yeah, but and by the end, you know, he's ready to play Happy Hogan in his in his couple of scenes or whatever. And they said he'd lost like seventy five pounds in the process. So it's like really amazing. Yeah. Every chapter, he's like ten pounds lighter. Yeah, one of the one of the things I heard about the Watchmen DVD as well, they were going to have a special feature about all the different other attempts to make Watchmen as a movie, the Gilliam attempt, the McHugh attempt, et cetera, et cetera, all the stuff that before Zack Snyder even got to the property. But that's cool. awesome. It'd be chock full of goodies, that's for sure. Yeah, that's going to be a huge DVD. Pre-order that sucker because it's going to sell out. Yeah, hopefully it all comes out on time, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, I guess that takes us through issue five. Hey, uh, Reed. Yeah. You ready for the uh, the comments from the floor? Oh, that's minus. awesome. That's what I was asking. If you had them ready to go, man, I knew we kept you around for something. There we go. <laughs> go uh, ahead. First comment we have is from Alexander B. Uh, he's been a, a pretty big supporter of us. I, th- I think you all would agree. Uh, he's been following along with us and has been commenting quite a few times on the forum. So uh, basically he says uh, he's got a few things to add. Uh, this issue is obsessed with mirror imagery, which we mentioned. Uh, not only does it use mirror panels throughout the book, but nearly every time the reader sees Dan and Lori, it is a mirror reflection looking into, look at the diner scenes and the scenes in Dan's home. The first and last panels of the page seven show a Buddha poster with him floating in a triangle, more hints. And the triangle seems, seems to have a clock effect with the bloodstained splatter across it. Yep. He nailed it. Yep. <laughs> he also, like we mentioned, he likes the first person perspective of Rorschach uh, to help build the mystery around his true uh, appearance. And it shows how easily he blends into society with his mask. He also mentions Veidt's fighting the assassin in the beautiful two-page layout. Page 22, at first I do not understand the raw shark piece of the dialogue by the detectives. I kept looking for a tie between that and the shark and the pirate story on page 20. It wasn't until I read it a few times that I saw the fact that raw shark was uh, subtly sounds like Rorschach. Very smart play on the words by Moore. And then uh, he mentions, like you all did, uh, grapple gun to the chest is all kinds of hurt. Uh, oh, yeah. So that was, uh, again, from Alexander uh, B. So thanks for that. Yeah, we thank have, you very much. Uh, another note from Caliban on the forums. It's, uh, it says, pretty well-known stuff now, but keep an eye out for what's going on the new- over the news vendor's shoulder on page 12 and 17 in particular. And that's where we were mentioning that uh, Rorschach is digging behind the news vendor in the garbage can. Right. Uh, the pickup for uh, Mohawk's note. So uh, thanks both to Alexander being uh, Caliban for those notes. Uh, keep them coming. We really do appreciate those. Definitely. And I think uh, I think we'll wrap it up here. We'd like to thank everybody for listening. Uh, please come visit us at the comic forums at the Half Hour Wasted thread. And please, again, if you're not listening to Half Hour Wasted and you are listening to us some way, somehow, then uh, please check out HalfHourWasted.com. Check out Brad and Frank and Bill McGonnell's podcast. They do a great job. And check out Too Old to Grow Up, which is Ken's other podcast. Come join us at Steel City Con, uh, 24th and 25th. Uh, for you know, giveaways and CDs of our shows, and come meet the Legion of Dude, which will be me. Awesome. And uh, please send comments to comments at legionofdudes.com. And we will see you next week with. Uh, we're gonna, the Dude's going to try something new next week. We're going to do a little wild card episode 
where we're going to uh, discuss some different things rather than a specific book. I believe that's next on the schedule, right, guys? That's what I saw, yeah. That's right. Yeah, right. Meet the dudes. Yeah, meet the dudes. So you never know what's going to happen there, especially if UMAC shows up. And after that, we'll get to Watchmen issue six, and we're in the second half of the book. Unbelievable. It's flying by. <laughs> yeah. What a long stricken trip it's been. Yes. That's right. All right, everybody. Take care. Have a good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night. See you. All right.